This morning we're going to look at the first 20 verses of Matthew 16. So turn with me to that section. It's in this section that Jesus speaks the word, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's this section that the Roman Catholic Church uh, uses as the primary basis justification for the papacy. We want to look at this, uh, these verses this morning. And to do so, we need to look at the, the whole context. Verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. They repeatedly did. They were uh, did. They challenged Jesus. Oh, they had seen him uh, heal the sick and cast out demons and give sight to the blind and raise the dead. But they wanted to see a real miracle, something that was convincingly and unquestioningly from heaven. They so they challenged him and said, "Show us a sign." But he answered and said to them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. He says that they know how to discern the signs of the heavens and that they can uh, tell what the weather is going to be, be like by looking at the sky, but they fail to discern the signs of the times. Now, when John the Baptist was confused over the nature of Jesus' ministry, he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus what was going on. And Jesus responded to, to, to John in the words of Isaiah 61.1, we find in Matthew 11. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John the things which you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are the same signs that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had seen repeatedly. It should have led them to the same conclusion, that Jesus was the Messiah who had come. Jesus says they should know the signs of the times. Furthermore, Daniel's uh, prophecy in, in Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks was about to hit one of the high points, the end of the 69th week, after which the Messiah would be cut off, according to Daniel 9. The beginning point of that prophecy was the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which the decree to rebuild it, which was in 444 B.C. under Cyrus, the Persian. The time was drawing to a close. They should have known that these were the days when the Messiah would come. But Jesus rebukes them, and he says to them, Your problem is not a lack of evidence, and therefore no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of, of Jonah. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the earth, in the same way the Son of Man will spend three days in the... Uh, Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, the same way the Son of Man will spend three days in the belly of the earth. And that sign will only be given after they crucify him. But he says, your problem is not a lack of evidence. Your problem is that you 
are an evil and adulterous generation. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not adulterous in the sense that they committed physical acts of adultery. They were much too proper for that. But the Bible tells us in James 4.4 that friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. Not making friends with worldly people, we are to do that, as Jesus did. But if we make ourselves friends of the world in the sense that we adopt worldly philosophies and approach to life, let them supplant what the scriptures teach us, then we are becoming spiritual adulterers, selling out our spirits to, to false gods. And Jesus says, this is what you religious teachers are, spiritually adulterous. They were religious, all right. Their lives were centered around religion. And yet they had sold themselves out and were pursuing the worldly goals of status and recognition from men and wealth and power and self-sufficient self-righteousness. Now, we can be much the same. We can put on a religious facade, be very uh, uh, outwardly religious, go to church, and yet deep down and underneath be just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees be unbelieving. We can utter a prayer and we have a problem and yet not live as if we really believe that God is in control of our lives, always available and present, offering us his power, sufficient for every circumstance. When we encounter interpersonal conflicts, we can talk about Christian love, especially to those who are bugging us, but when it comes to us, we respond with vindictiveness and resentment and selfishness and defensiveness. We can sing in church with gusto, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And yet when it comes to arranging our lives and choosing our priorities, we can seek first our own comfort and pleasures, our material uh, advancement, and forget about God. And that's much, the, much like the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. They played a good game. They gave God lip service. And yet their hearts were basically unbelieving. And that was the problem that led them to reject the Messiah when he came. Well, the followers of Jesus Christ are to beware of being like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus warns them in the next section, verses 5 to 12, that they are to avoid the sins of these people. And the disciples came to the other side and had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, It is because we took no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves because you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many large baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, how many baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he was not saying to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, after this encounter in verses 1 to 4, Jesus and his disciples left, crossed over to the other side of the lake. 
Jesus apparently had been silent, was thinking about the, the uh, pitiable situation in which the religious leaders of the nation were, were worldly people, not fulfilling their function. And all of a sudden he blurts out, Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples were their usual thick-headed selves at this point. And they started uh, saying to one another, What is he talking about? And as was usually the case, they were too self-conscious to ask him what he was talking about. And so they tried to, to uh, fake it and play like they knew all along what he was saying. They said, well, he's probably rebuking us because we didn't bring bread. And they looked around and noticed that there was no bread amongst them. And he said, well, maybe, there, maybe he's warning us and saying, make sure we don't buy the bread from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, lest their leaven... Uh, which is contaminated and contaminates us in some ways. But what are we going to do for bread? Now, there was, if there was one thing that bothered Jesus about his disciples, it was their lack of faith. He could tolerate their ignorance, uh, their lack of perception, and yet the thing that bothered him the most was their lack of faith. It's that which, for which he rebuked them. Time and again. Now notice that back in uh, chapter 15, the last story in that chapter is about the feeding of the 4,000. Back in chapter 14, we have the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It appears that the feeding of the 4,000 was probably earlier that day or maybe the day before. We're not sure precisely. But immediately after these uh, two miraculous feedings and the supply of Jesus Christ for the, the bread needs of many, the disciples are all uptight because they don't have bread. And notice that he points out that when he performed both of these miracles, there were many large baskets left over. And the surplus in both those cases indicated that Jesus Christ is more than adequate to meet all of our needs and then some. And yet they were all concerned because they had forgotten to bring bread. Now, if it's one thing that is one attitude that, that is completely unnecessary for the disciple of Jesus Christ, it's anxiety. It's worry over our daily provisions. Now, it's true we have all kinds of threats in the world, the, the economic uncertainties of the time. Many uh, are afraid they'll lose their jobs or have lost them. Inflation eats away at all of us. We see uh, many indications of an unstable uh, political situation throughout the world. And yet as Christians, we don't have to be up, upset and uh, anxious over all these circumstances. There's one attitude that should uh, underlie uh, our whole life. It's a confidence that God, our Heavenly Father, will supply and it's for this that Jesus rebukes the disciples. He rebukes them not only for their lack of faith, and then he goes on and does rebuke them as well for their lack of discernment. He says they should have perceived that he was talking about something else. They should have uh, counted on his provision of their daily physical needs so much that they knew that he wasn't concerned about that. They should have known that he was talking to them about the teaching of, this, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
warning them that their influences could be subtle, like the influence of a little bit of leaven in a lump of dough, and yet that influence would spread and permeate the whole. He says their teaching is that same, the same way. Now what is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, basically it's unbelief. We see that in the story immediately preceding. They were skeptical and unbelieving. And as we analyze the two groups, they were unbelieving in a little bit different ways. The roots of their unbelief were somewhat different. The Pharisees' basic problem, their root problem, was that they were self-righteous, self-sufficient, and self-confident. They related to God in pride, in proud self-satisfaction over their own goodness, based upon their own goodness, their righteousness, their works, rather than in humble dependence of faith. They had worked out an elaborate system uh, of all the do's and the don'ts, of what obeying and disobeying the law meant in all circumstances, and they were very confident that they were righteous. Now, this led to at least three problems. First of all, it led them to a rigid self-confidence. They knew that they were right, and therefore they were not open to uh, correction. For instance, when Jesus tried to re-educate them about the nature of, and the purpose of the Sabbath and what true Sabbath-keeping was, they were unopened because they knew all the answers. A second problem uh, that they had was uh, their wrong sense of priority. Look in Matthew 23, or just listen as I read his rebuke to them in Matthew 23, 23. He says there, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Because they focus so much on externals and their external behavior, they were all concerned about whether or not they tithed a little bit of mint that they cut out of their garden. And yet they completely overlooked the weightier matters of the law, justice and faithfulness and mercy, Jesus says. So they had a perverted sense of priority. A third problem that their false approach to God led to was self-centeredness. All they were concerned about was how they looked to other people how they came across. And this led to a total lack of concern for others and a lack of outreach. Jesus had to rebuke them time and again. They got upset with him for associating with sinners and he had to correct them. Well, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. But they totally lacked that kind of perception. Now, we can be like the Pharisees and in these same three ways. We can be rigidly self-confident, and some of us are, and I know that, that I am at times. We can be, become uh, uh, so con convinced that we are right, that we are uh, measuring up to all of God that God wants us to do, that when somebody comes and corrects us or rebukes us, we always have an answer. There's always an excuse 
very quick to defend ourselves and point out why it's really somebody else's problem. Or it may appear that I was wrong there, but if you really understand why I did it, you'll see why I'm completely justified. Or when we open the Bible and read it, our first thought is always, oh, I wish that John would read this verse. Because obviously God's not going to say something to me because I'm all right. Or we look in the Bible for added knowledge, but not for God to speak through his word to us about our lives. Or we can share the Pharisees' perverted sense of priority. We can become so concerned with minor doctrinal issues like the mode of baptism or when the rapture is going to, to happen or so concerned with, with uh, minor ethical issues like the, the morality of dancing and card playing that we neglect the weightier matters of the law. Now, Jesus didn't rebuke the Pharisees for being precise and concerned about details. But their problem is that they majored on the minors. And when we do that, take something that is relatively minor, make that our central issue, and forget about love and justice and outreach and mercy and service, then we can be just like the Pharisees. Or we can be self-centered like they were. We can be concerned only with how God can heal my inner hurts. We come to church or go to fellowship groups or Bible studies just so I can get a big, a big charge, uh, a spiritual kick in the pants, and uh, some kind of boost. And yet, like the Pharisees, be unconcerned about other people. We can be all wrapped up in ourselves and how I feel and how I look to other people that we share with them a lack of concern for the poor of the world and the emotionally scarred and the socially outcast and the uh, millions who are in danger of dying without the, the saving message of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus says that his, that his disciples are to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees had the same problem of unbelief, but theirs was, had a little bit different twist to it. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were united in their opposition to Jesus and yet were very different in many ways. The Pharisees were, were uh, sort of the conservatives of the day. They believed in the existence of angels, the immort immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the body. They were very careful and zealous to uh, prevent any intrusion of Greek culture and thought into Jewish society. But the Sadducees were the liberals. Excuse me, they didn't believe in angels or immortality of the soul or resurrection of the body. Uh, they were very much more lenient in their interpretation of the law. They uh, welcomed the intrusion of Greek culture into Jewish life. They were the priestly aristocracy. The high priests were all Sadducees and the ruling uh, priestly families. They cooperated with the Roman government. Their problem was worldly materialism and political opportunism. They wanted their wealth and their power. If they had to compromise to get it, that was fine with them. Now, we can be very religious, like the Sadducees were. They were, most of whom were priests, and yet also follow their lifestyle. 
We can be basically, we can be very religious on the outside and yet basically interested in our personal peace and affluence like they were. Those are the most important things to us. Our status, our wealth, our power, what we can get in terms of, of the goods of this world. Jesus warns his disciples to avoid falling into the trap of the teaching, the priorities, of the example of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says just a little bit, and it works like leaven, and will leaven the whole lump of your life. Well, these people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were the rulers of the nation, spiritually, religiously. They were to be the ones who would lead the people in truth and dispense uh, knowledge of God. And yet Jesus had to rebuke them because they were failing to live up to their responsibilities. <clears throat> Let me read to you another verse from Matthew 23. It's time verse 13. Jesus says there, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are uh, entering to go in. Since they are sort of the gatekeepers, they have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and as religious leaders, they are to open the doors, to let people in to a knowledge of God. And yet he rebukes them because they are shutting off people from God. They are closing those doors. In Luke 11, he uses words that are a little bit different and, and, and pronounces a judgment upon the scribes, the lawyers, who are taking away the key of knowledge, he says. The key that could, the knowledge that could uh, open up a relationship with a living God. They're taking that away and shutting people off by their, their false attitudes and their false teachings. Well, these were the religious leaders. They were failing their responsibilities and they were responding to Jesus in unbelief. So Jesus takes away the keys of the kingdom from them and he turns them over to the disciples, those who have responded to him in faith. Even though the disciples did not hold any positions of authority, they weren't uh, official teachers or religious leaders, nevertheless, God loves to choose the, the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the powerful. And we see in the next section, verses 13 to 20, that he takes those keys of the kingdom and turns them over to his disciples. And, uh, with uh, Simon Peter standing uh, as the representative of them all. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should 
tell no one that he was the Christ. First, Jesus questions him, and he determines that though other people regard him as a great prophet, his disciples regard him as something more. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he says in verse 17 that flesh and blood did not reveal this. Could not. He says it's not a mere uh, result of human deduction that leads us to a conclusion that Jesus is the Christ but rather it takes a work of God in the human heart. This explains why it is that when we try to evangelize, merely memorizing all of the right arguments, all of the right facts is not sufficient. It takes faith, it takes prayer, because only God can open the door in somebody's heart. We can't ever, through our cleverness or our knowledge, do so. And then he tells them in In verse 18, uh, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. As I said earlier, the Roman Catholic Church takes this as the prime basis for the papacy. They claim that that Peter was, at this point, made the head over all the church, given the power to uh, make regulations, to bind and to loose things, And that this authority is then passed down to all of his successors after him. Boniface VIII, Pope in 1302, went so far as to say this, Further we declare, say, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has modified their position since that time, and yet we can see the very strong prominence that they give to Peter and to his supposed successors based upon these verses. However, as we look at these verses more closely, we see that they don't really say uh, any such thing. Jesus says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, in doing so, he uses a word play. The word Peter in Greek is Petros, and the word rock is Petra. Petros means a rock and, or a stone, a pebble, and Petra means a bedrock. Jesus is saying, you are Peter, and upon this bedrock, uh, he says, you are a stone, and upon this bedrock, I will build my church. Now, some have suggested that what he's saying is that the bedrock is the faith that Peter confesses in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet the wordplay with Peter's name and the proximity of Peter would seem to lead us to the conclusion that Peter is the rock. But what does it mean that he is the rock? Well, verse 19 further defines that. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Some suggest that the keys of the kingdom means authority over the whole church, as Roman Catholics do. Others suggest that it means an authority that Peter shared with the other apostles to define the faith, to teach inspired doctrine and and, uh, moral regulations. And yet I think we can see from looking at uh, Matthew 23.13, as we did before, and then also at Luke 11.52, which I referred to, that the that Jesus is referring to the keys of the kingdom is not the ability to, to make up new rules, 
but the ability to open the doors of the kingdom to people through his preaching. And this is exactly the picture that we see in the book of Acts and in the epistles. We don't see Peter as the head of the church. What we see is Peter in Acts 2 being the first one to preach to the Jews. In Acts 8, Peter and John are sent uh, to the Samaritans to baptize them, make them a part of the uh, of the one universal church. In Acts 10 and 11, we see Peter being the first one to break the ice by taking the gospel to the Gentiles and then accepting them into the church without making them first become Jews. It's Peter who is the rock, the foundation. And he is the foundation because he's the one who begins this kind of preaching and opens up the kingdom of heaven to those who would come in. He binds in that he binds people into the inevitable consequences of the of their unbelief if they reject the message that he proclaims. He looses in that he opens the door to forgiveness for sins if they will but believe what he preaches to them. Uh, furthermore, we see in, in the book of Acts, uh, particularly in Acts 15, during the Jerusalem Council, uh, Peter is one of the prime spokesmen of the council, and yet it's James who is, who is very obviously the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So Peter was not the leader of the church, or recognizes such from the, from the beginning. In Peter's epistles, he makes no mention of the fact that he is the Pope. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 5, he simply appeals to other elders as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. In other words, as one of the apostles, but never as a, a Pope who stands above the church. Now, Jesus is not giving Peter the rule over the church what he's doing is he's taking away from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees their position of responsibility as leaders of the nation to open the doors of the kingdom to people through their teaching, through their example, through their leadership. And he's giving that leadership then to those who have responded to him in faith. And we can see from the rest of Scripture that, that the keys were not given simply to Peter, but they're given to Peter here as the, the uh, foundation or the beginning of the preachers, and then the, the uh, other apostles and the whole church takes upon that responsibility and is given that responsibility. And so today, in the 20th century, God has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven not to people who simply hold offices as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but to those who respond to him in faith. Why, just looking around, see people who have the keys of the kingdom and have exercised them. Marlene Matthias, who led a, uh, a relative, was it your brother or Dave's brother, to Christ earlier this year through writing letters to him about Jesus. Or uh, uh, Bob Pence, Nolaf Wiedemann, who led a brother to Christ through the uh, Evangelism Visitation Program this year. Or I can think of uh, uh, Brett Cox and, and uh, Darcy Ray, who led... Uh, a child to Christ in the backyard Bible clubs. Or can think of uh, a Sunday school teacher who led a, a seven-year-old girl to Christ last month through teaching the story about Noah and the ark, asking her whether she was in the ark or out. And uh, The ark, as the New Testament tells us, represents Jesus. 
If we're in, we'll be saved. If we're out, we won't. Or I can think of uh, uh, Lee Bloom, who led a friend to Christ five months ago. I talked with, uh, with him Friday. He shared with me how Lee had, had led him to, to faith five months ago. To these kind of people, and to all of us really, God has given the keys of the kingdom of heaven that we might open the doors and invite people in. Well, in verse 20, Jesus says something that seems a little bit contradictory to that. He says, Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. We might ask, well, if the keys of the kingdom are the, uh, the authority and the responsibility to proclaim the message of Christ, why does he tell, no, tell them to tell nobody about him? Well, the reason is he didn't want them to, to, to spread the news yet. He did not want to precipitate a premature conflict, confrontation with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. As he indicates in the Gospel of John in several places, there was an hour that the Father had appointed for his death. That hour had not yet come. And therefore, he didn't want to bring things to a head quite yet. But after the death, he makes clear in the Great Commission that they are to take this message now and proclaim it to the whole earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you count unworthy people like ourselves worthy by grace to be recipients of great responsibility and authority in this world. Lord, we pray that you will deliver us from the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's easy to become self-centered and self-righteous. It's easy to become materialistic as the Sadducees were, and wanting only worldly power and status. Father, we pray that you'll produce in us humble hearts, hearts that are receptive to you. We pray that you would make us like the disciples, who, though they weren't perfect, erred in many ways, nevertheless responded to the Lord Jesus in faith. Father, we want to see ourselves for who we are, and see you for who you are. And therefore be humble and yet confident and bold because of you. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.